Thank you, everybody. Oh, it's so good to be here with you. If you're the type, if you're the type like follow actual Bible, Acts chapter eight. We're gonna get to that in just a second. It's always good to be with one of my Adelaide families. Actually, you were my first Adelaide family. So you guys, uh, you guys were the first church to ever bring me to Adelaide. Now it takes me, I don't know, three weeks to get through it all. So it's it's really uh, it's really good. But you honor you, you honor the family that brought you in first, and. Um, and I honor you guys. Thanks for being my friend and, and being so hospitable. Um, if you don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who happens to have his rabbi training as well. So my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me. Um, on, your way, on your way out there to the left is a mini version of my table. Um, we have um, our resources out there. The, the only thing is it's a smaller version because I wanna be a good citizen and not take up too much space considering restrictions. And so um, we only brought what we did new in the last 18 months. And now you're in luck, that's a lot, all right? So I, I did a whole brand new series on the book of Revelation. I did, I just could not believe how embarrassed I was about the stuff I was seeing Christians, I just, I could not cope. So we, we, did, a, we did a series on that. And then we did a, a seven part series on faith and uncertainty. Um, during the COVID lockdowns, uh, we were asked to be in these online platforms everywhere and be interviewed. Um, I'm talking about like some, by some really smart people, Dustin Bell and Chris Mulhair and um, Nathan Bean and Rob Buckingham and Byron Graham, people like this. And so at the end of that, we had like 12 hours worth of uh, Q&A sort of stuff on any topic you could imagine. So that's out there as well. Um, this week, we released a brand new series called Mastering the Art of Living. Um, so you can, uh, you can pick that up out there. And just today, you were the first church to get this. Just today, uh, we've, we've released our Christology course. So the, the nature, I did a 10 part series on the nature of Christ. Uh, the ACC in Queensland asked me to, um, asked me to write a Christology course. And, um, and so, and of course, if that sounds boring to you, it's not, it's me doing it my way. And, um, and so it's, ten, it's a 10 part series on the nature of Christ. It's out there, you're the first church that has it, all right? So um, you can pick that up. 100% of everything we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. So we have three homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, right? So um, yeah, so it's, it's all out there. Come, come out and, and pick something up. If you know you're not gonna get anything, God bless you, I'll see you next time. If you know you're gonna pick something up before you leave, if you could do that first, that would be awesome because I got to pack it up and, uh, and take it with me. So if you could do that first, so, so it's the order of things is buy first, chat second, okay? <laughs> buy first, chat second, right? Buy first, chat second. I'm going to just subliminally do that throughout this. Buy first, chat second. Okay, so I get to open the Bible today and I take that very seriously. Now, anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? Uh, so I, I, during the COVID stuff, I, I got asked lots of questions. The number one question I got asked is, where is God in the COVID thing? Why doesn't God just control it? Which actually, that reveals a pretty fallacious way of looking at God, as if God is sitting above as an existing object, choosing to operate in power or not. That's a weird sort of strange imagination of God, but it would take me too long to undo all that. There is a great answer to that, but we're not gonna do that today. Second answer, the second question is, is Shane, where's the church go from here? surely the church won't look the same after this. 
as it did before. And where's it gonna go? What kind of paradigm shift do we need to operate in? And th this is one of those answers. And so I'm gonna just, I'll say this as boldly as I can um, and as humbly as I can. For you to be a part of where the church is going and be happy about it. Now you could always be a part and be like disgruntled, but if you're gonna be a part of where this thing is going and be happy about it, we're gonna have to get on board with what we're talking about today. Now, let me illustrate before we get to the message, let me illustrate this is a true story and it will serve as the primary imagination of what we're gonna talk about, okay? This is a true story about an American that came to Australia in the late 80s, okay? Now, um, let me just set this up, okay? I'm American, Americans love Australian cultures. We love it, we love it, we can't get enough of it. Primarily because of a guy named Crocodile Dundee, right? And, and, and there's a steakhouse called Outback Steakhouse. Between the two, Americans love Australian culture. And you could, you could make millions if you move to America and just do anything Australian. I'll give you an example. Americans have never heard of pavlova. We don't know what that is, right? So if you go to America and open a pavlova shop, you will go broke. But if you call it the great Aussie pie, you'll make millions, right? Because all you have to do is call something Australian and Americans love it. And when an American comes to Australia for the first time, they always wanna see one thing. What is it? The, yeah, no, they wanna see the Outback, which kangaroos is there. We wanna see the Outback. That's what they wanna see. And I'm thinking, I live here, right? And I'm thinking, trust me, you don't wanna see the Outback. Listen, if, 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 you, if you fly to Wyala and then drive like 10 minutes out of town, that is the Outback, like for 3,000 more miles. That's, that's, that's all it is, but they don't listen. They have to see the Outback because they think Crocodile Dundee lives there. They think all Australian men look like Paul Hogan, right? Not true, right? They just, oh. The, the, other, thing, the other thing they can't get their head around, Americans, is the sheer size of properties. We don't have any, we have no concept of private property being the size that it is in Australian Outback places. Like we have no idea, like Bill Gates just recently became the largest private landowner in America. Like he bought like a million acres, which Australians are like, right, right? Like my pastor, my pastor is an old cattleman. He's 84 years old now. He's an old cattleman though. And the, and the cattle property that he ran when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. To an American, that's the state of Connecticut. That is an enormous amount of property. So the American came in the 80s and he looked at the properties and he's like, shoot, how, how do you keep the cattle from just wandering off? What do you do? And so he's looking around and he said to the farmer, he said, he said, bro, how do you keep the cattle from just wandering off? You don't have a fence up around your whole property. And the, and the, and the farmer was like, you can't put a fence around. It, it, would, it, it would cost too much. You, you'd have to have an act of Congress to build your wall. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, he said, well, what do you do to keep the cattle from running away? And he said, what you do is you have a surveyor come in and you have them put strategic wells in the middle of certain paddocks, it creates predictable, consistent water sources. And he said, look, the cows learn where the water is and they'll never vary more than three or five kilometers away from it. And if it gets dry, they're gonna be right there. And the farmer said to the American, mate, mate, if you got the right wells, you don't need all those fences. 
which leads me to Jesus. So Jesus comes into the world in the most fence-based paradigm of ministry maybe ever. 613 rules. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? And more importantly, who's clean and who's unclean? Jesus shows up and changes the whole thing to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would want to be treated. Jesus called his followers never to be pedantic and obsessed about being right about one verse, but rather to do something more profound than that and fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. He moved the whole thing from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm, which leads me to Acts. Acts is a story about people who profoundly were impacted by Christ. That Jesus was not somebody to believe in. That's, so what? Demons believe in Jesus, so that doesn't do anything. Jesus is not somebody to believe in. Jesus is somebody to be so profoundly connected to that it fundamentally shifts the way you see your whole world. That's two different things. So the idea is, is that the way Jesus saw the world was the best, and they actually believed it. Here's the whole book of Acts, or the whole first 12 chapters of Acts, in about 20 seconds. Here it is, ready? A group of people did amazing things, and then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things because it didn't fit the rules. And then they overcame the persecution, and then they did more amazing things. And then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things, and then they overcame the persecution, and then they did more amazing things. And then they got persecuted. And then in the middle of that, their friend Stephen gets killed. And once Stephen gets murdered, they took their show on the road. Because even the most ardent followers of Christ are like, look, you just murdered our friend. We're gonna take our message somewhere else to you chill out, right? And that makes a whole lot of sense. So then they go to this place called Samaria. Now by Acts 8, they're supposed to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. But Acts 8, they're still in Jerusalem. They haven't even left well, until what happens? Stephen gets killed. And then when Stephen gets killed, they're like, we are going somewhere else, namely Samaria. And so particularly a, a disciple named Philip goes to Samaria and he starts doing amazing things, so much so that people are offering him money. And then there's this weird story. You, you, you look for context and there is none. This story I'm gonna read to you is not connected to the story before, and it's not connected to the story afterwards. It's a story Luke put into the book of Acts, like everybody needs to know this story, and I don't know where it connects, but here, right? And so it's that, and when stories like that are in there, we need to look, and it's the story about a guy named Philip and an anonymous bloke named the Ethiopian eunuch. And this story is frankly strange because here's the truth of it, okay? For the church to be where it's gonna go and you're gonna be a part of it and be happy about it, we must move from a fence-based way of thinking to a well-based way of thinking. And my whole thing today is gonna be trying to put language around that. Now, this story is quite confronting. Let's read this. This, this is a, uh, uh, that's, that's great. Who did this slide? That was a great slide. Here we go. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south road that goes down uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. By the way, that's where people were getting killed, right? And so in other words, go, go back to where it's dangerous. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, an, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, let's just stop. I, I, th this story is too weird for words. You have an Ethiopian eunuch who rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I have too many questions to even comprehend. 
Like that is a long, according to Google Maps from Ethiopia to Jerusalem is 3,853 kilometers. To give you an Australian context on that, that's riding a horse from Adelaide to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. That is a long way to ride a horse, which might be why he's a eunuch. <clears throat> it leads me to all kinds of questions like, why is an Ethiopian guy riding a horse 3,853 kilometers to be with a group of people that he doesn't speak their language and then further on, he's clutching the scroll of a prophet called Isaiah that there's no way he could understand what that guy was talking about. Why is this all happening? This is weird. And then it gets weirder. Watch what happens. Next slide. And the spirit said to Philip, we'll go over to him on his chariot. Well, that makes sense. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you even understand what you're reading? Which, no, right? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him on, on his chariot. So now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. This is from Isaiah 54, I think. Next slide. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom can I ask you, does the prophet speak about? Is it about himself? Or so? Like this guy's understanding of anything is so elemental. He's not even sure if Isaiah is speaking of himself, someone else, but he does know that Isaiah is speaking of a God that doesn't sit above as an existent object, but rather is willing to suffer with the story of humanity in order to make a better story. And that is better news. And he's like, who's this guy talking about? Now watch this, next slide. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, well, look, here's some water. Is there anything preventing me from being baptized? In other words, I'd love to join your Jesus movement. Can you think of a reason I can't? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Keep going. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And they went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. What a strange story. No context before, no context after. And if you're paying attention as I read the story, you should have questions. And I have questions. And I'm gonna let you in on the questions I ask because maybe they're the same questions you're asking. Next slide. Like, is there too much information in this passage? Like, do we really need to know this guy's a eunuch? Six times, oh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, by the way, if we haven't mentioned it yet, he's a eunuch. Oh, by the way, if I haven't made that a point, this guy's a eunuch. I mean, Luke, over and over and over and over again. Hey, if I haven't mentioned it yet, this guy's a eunuch. Hey, this guy, he is not just a normal dude. He is a eunuch. He is a eunuch. Do we actually need to know that? And if you're the eunuch, do you appreciate that? Do you want the whole world knowing that you're missing part of your anatomy, right? Do you want the whole world? You know that eunuch's confronting Luke right now in heaven going, really, bro, really? You put that in the... You put that in the Bible, you know Shane can't read over that and just act like it's not there. He's got to point it out to everybody. This guy's a eunuch. This guy's, a, why is Luke so obsessed? Why not like the Ethiopian guy, you know, or, or Barry the Ethiopian? No, no, it's a eunuch. This guy's a eunuch. And why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? That's strange. It's not like the holiest site in the whole world to the Ethiopian wasn't at Mount Sinai, which is like halfway. 
Why would you go all the way to Jerusalem? That's weird, right? And why the scroll of Isaiah? Out of all the scrolls, why, why is that? And how does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing his anatomy? That's strange. Why is this even included in the Bible? And, and next slide. And, and is there any reason why I can't be baptized? That's the central question. This Ethiopian eunuch wants to join the Jesus movement, and he asks a good question. He doesn't know the rules. Can you think of a reason I can't be a part? And here's the problem. In Philip's world, there was a big reason he couldn't be a part. And Philip has to decide, am I going to be a well-based thinker or a fence-based thinker? Because the, the, the question that this story is forcing us to wrestle with today is, are we going to be a fence-based place or a well-based church? What is that going to look like? Is there any reason I can't be baptized? The answer is yes. There was a rule. Here's the problem with the rule. It was written in the Bible. Let me show it to you. This is Deuteronomy 23. Moses really gets on a roll with his fences here. Watch this. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting, as if that's better, may enter into the assembly of the Lord. God does not accept eunuchs. It's in the Bible. That's why we got to be careful when we say things like, we need to be more biblical, be more specific. I know what you mean by that. What we mean is, is we need to see the world the way Jesus saw the world. That's what we mean. But when we say biblical, we're including eunuchs aren't welcome, right? It's in the rules. No eunuchs. Eunuchs are not welcomed by God. Now, Moses gets on a roll. Watch what he says. No one born of a forbidden marriage or any of their descendants may get an injury of the assembly of the Lord, not even 10 generations from now. Now, I'm, I was born in 1976. And in my lifetime, I heard a youth pastor use that passage to challenge teenagers to avoid premarital sexuality. The idea was, is if you mess up and get them pregnant, the kid won't be welcome in heaven. Or the grandkid, or the grandkid, or the grandkid. They have a verse, right? And that is Homer Simpson hermeneutics. And of course, those people left the church and then people in the church said, oh, see, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them and that image, frankly, should be rejected, right? Oh, and he's on a roll. No, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants can enter in the assembly, Lord, not even 10 generations from now. In the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, there's more fences than Jesus's entire ministry. And Jesus's presence itself sort of confronts this. Like if you check Jesus's genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. So I think God accepts Moabites, right? And there were certain questions around the circumstances revolving around his birth, right? Right? Now, if you don't hear me say anything else in my entire life, hear me say this. If you want to ruin the Bible, here's all you got to do. Anybody, anybody game to ruin the Bible? Here's all you got to do. Read it statically. Read it as a static appropriated thing. The Bible is not statically appropriated. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. Deuteronomy 23 clearly says no eunuchs allowed. So when a eunuch says, and a foreigner eunuch at that, a foreigner eunuch says, hey, can you think of a reason I can't be baptized? The answer would be, yeah, I can. Actually, I can. There's a rule. It's clear. It's a Bible verse. I don't know. And, and you know what? I, I, you, 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 this Bible, see, Philip has a choice. He can either be right about Deuteronomy 23, or he could do something more profound and fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Which leads me to Isaiah. Why is this foreigner eunuch so interested 
in this odd scroll from Isaiah. Let me read you the next passage on the same scroll. Here it is. This is Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenants. To them, I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. In other words, Isaiah says to eunuchs that want it, God will not cast them aside. To foreigners that want it. See how the Bible's not static? Deuteronomy 23, no eunuchs, no foreigners. Isaiah 56, actually, if foreigner eunuchs want in, I can't imagine, upon further review, I think God's nicer than that, right? right? Like, Deuteronomy 23 says, no eunuchs. Isaiah 56 says, eunuchs that want it. Matthew 19, Jesus said, some people are born eunuchs because of God. And then by Acts 8, you have this encounter with a foreigner eunuch with a guy who's been profoundly affected by Christ. Where is this gonna go? Next slide, check this. And I will give them an everlasting that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name. In other words, if foreigners want it, we're not gonna cast foreigners out. Imagine if Isaiah stopped right there and went, any questions, right? Uh, what about Moabites? Yeah, even them. We had this lady named Ruth. She was a Moabite, wanted to be a Jew. We sort of let her in. Like, like it's, 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 it's that, right? To be a servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, keep going. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted, in fact. Wow. Wow. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I can read that in Hebrew and the word there is all. Can you imagine the Q&A? Any questions? Uh, Ammonites, yep. Moabites, yep. Edomites, yep. Sidonites, yep. We can go through all the fences or we can change from a fence-based way of thinking to a well-based way of thinking. And that is if they want it, God's not gonna cast them aside. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Now, if you're more of a linear learner than a narrative learner, I did this for you because you'd have got lost in the narrative. Next slide. So there's two characters in this story. There's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer. He, but he would have been disqualified by the rules. There is a rule that says no eunuchs. It's in the Bible. And then you have Philip, one of the original 12 from a devoutly Orthodox village called Bethsaida. And he would have lived by all 613 fences until he met Jesus and that changed. And by the way, this encounter has a certain amount of fruit to it as well. Next slide. So today, 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christ followers. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia, right? The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to that one eunuch. In other words, you never know. If Philip would have decided, I'd rather be right about Deuteronomy 23 verse one and tell the guy he can't join the movement, there would be an entire nation today following a different God. But because Philip was brave enough to fulfill scripture, instead of being right about one verse, two thirds of an entire country today are Christ. You never know the long lasting fruit of being willing to fulfill scripture instead of being right about it. What does it mean to be a well-based place? It means as a Christ-centered community, we are committed to fulfilling scripture instead of being right about one verse. There are 613 rules in the whole thing. There's something that would disqualify all of us 
Can you think of a person or a group of people who might be thinking, can I join your movement? And we can always think of a verse as to why they can't, but we're called to be better than that. We are called to do something more profound, which is to do unto others as we would have them do unto us and to lose the fence-based thinking and to embrace the well-based thinking. <clears throat> and by the way, that, the whole book of Acts is sort of like that. Next slide. It's an entire book about being surprised by how generous God is with people who are thirsty. Like remember this is one time, Peter's preaching a message and it says the Holy Spirit filled the Gentiles and it surprised everybody, including Peter. And the religious leader's like, hey, Peter, God doesn't fill Gentiles, explain yourself. And remember Peter's response? He's like, I know, I know. Funny enough, I agree with you. That's what I was taught my whole life too. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with what God is doing? Remember in Acts 4, it says they were amazed and in all that God was using normal, ordinary people. Why is that amazing? Because they had never seen that before. Now, <clears throat> that is my best effort at explaining what happened. I hope you weren't bored. <laughs> now let's spend the rest of the time asking a better question. So what? What's happening in me now, right now, because of what? Happen. What does this mean? Like if I was to say, life church needs to be a well-based place and never a fence-based place. Nobody goes, no, we need to make it harder. No one. But if we lose language, or if we don't have language around this, it gets really problematic. It just becomes a platitude that we don't know how to apply. So I've spent great effort putting language around this. Let, let's look at this, next slide. Jesus never asked, are you worthy? Jesus asked, are you thirsty? And that's two different things. Let, let, let's keep with our primary image, right? A fence-based place is obsessed with who is worthy, who's keeping the rules. And it's always the rules we like. Like it's always, we, we always pick and choose the rules. Let's just admit that, that's fine. But, but we, a fence-based place obsesses on who is worthy. A well-based place asks a better question, who's thirsty, who wants it? And if you want it, we can trust the Holy Spirit to do all the convicting and all the changing. We don't need to be the elements of conviction and change. If you want it, we are here to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes. Let's, let's keep our image. A fence-based place is obsessed with who is worthy. A well-based place is obsessed with who is thirsty. Let's say it another way. A fence-based place is obsessed with sinning less. We don't mess around with sin here. We call sin what it is. We're gonna take it to stop sinning, okay. I agree with the sentiment that people's lives are better the less they sin, yes, but to fight sin by forbidding sin is like fighting a fire with a spark gun. That doesn't work. A fence-based place is obsessed with sinning less. A well-based place is obsessed with loving more. And by loving more, we automatically sin less. Let's, let's say it this way. A fence-based place lives with the paradigm everything has to be fixed. Bring us your dysfunction, we're gonna fix it. We're gonna fix everything because we're the masters of good and evil. We're like the snake in the tree in the garden. We understand good and evil, right? That's ridiculous. A fence-based place is obsessed with everything has to be fixed. A well-based place is obsessed with nothing has to be hidden. And that's two different things. In other words, a well-based place says, if we create a shame-free culture where nothing has to be hidden, we can trust the Holy Spirit to do all the convicting and all the changing, given, given a couple of conditions, thirst, love, and a shame-free culture where nothing has to be hidden. Let's say it this way, a fence-based place is obsessed with who is worthy, a well-based place is obsessed with who is thirsty. 
A fence-based place is obsessed with sending less. A well-based place is obsessed with loving more. A fence-based place is obsessed with everything has to be fixed. A well-based place is obsessed with nothing has to be hidden. It seems to me, this is just my opinion, but it seems to me that the number one enemy of a Christ-centered community is not wickedness because it's actually not that compelling. The number one enemy of a Christ-centered community is a lack of thirst. It's when we lose our desire. It's when we lose our passion for it. It's when we, it's when we think we've arrived and we don't need any more growth. So it seems like a lack of thirst is the problem. So let's put some language around that. Next slide. So a lack of thirst is a lack of teachability. This is when we, this is when, look, the, the root word for disciple in both Hebrew and Greek is student, a teachable person. This is when we realize that whoever the smartest person in the room is, they haven't scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is, and we have an eternity of exploration toward our It's a teachable sort of thing. Look, I'll speak for myself. I, I would rather journey with a few hundred curious, teachable people than I would want to pastor a church of 5,000 unteachable Christians. 5,000 unteachable Christians sounds like hell to me. Like a thirsty culture is a teachable culture. Let's say it this way. A lack of thirst is a lack of humility. This is when we don't understand. Like we sing songs like where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right, right? But we don't, and true, but we don't understand that freedom is best expressed and experienced when it's submitted to a higher ethic of love, right? That you can't express and experience your freedom at the expense of somebody. Like it is a major theme in the New Testament that Christ-centered communities consider the weaker person instead of the stronger person. So a, a thirsty community is one that is so connected to Christ that they're willing to prefer the other person. Let's say it in the positive. A thirsty community is a teachable community. It's, it's a humble community. It's a responsible community. Like even in the Genesis poem, even before sin entered the story, people got their meaning from navigating responsibility for their world. And that's why when sin enters, what's the first thing they do? They all blame. That blame kills thirst. Like if somebody was, if, like think about it. If an alien came from outer space, and let's say they're a friendly alien, and they're like, listen, I've been paying attention to you humans, and there's a word that you have that we have no word for in, from our world, and that word is church. Like, what is church? What is this place you speak of? What is this? Uh, imagine, how would we describe it? Like, um, um, and if we described it in the most boring, like we're a group of people who believe all the same things. But boring, what boring, how boring is that? But what, what, if we, what if we said, oh, okay, church is a thirsty community. What does that mean? It means it's a group of people who get together regularly and they reground themselves in their creator and they're teachable, humble, and responsible in the process. We're a group of teachable, humble, responsible. That is compelling. See, a lack of thirst is ambivalence. It sort of says, well, now that I'm in, how I live doesn't matter. This is the problem. A fence-based place is obsessed with conversion, right? They're obsessed. Fence-based places are jump over the fence and convert. If I could use a, an orange as an example, we're all oranges. You're not an orange yet. So we really want you to pray our made up prayer so you could like become an orange, right? Like come do our ritual, our moment, our time. Listen, if you could just do that, if you could just become, we just desperately want you to become an orange so that your orangeness doesn't get squashed at the end. Like we, we want you to become an orange, right? We desperately, because we're oranges. And if you want to be like us, we want you to be an orange. And look, we celebrate conversion. Like if, if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would urge you to become a follower of Jesus. But a fence-based place stops there, 
He says, well, good, now that you're, now that you're an orange, well, awesome, right? But a well-based place goes further. A well-based place says, oh, no, no, now that you're an orange, we want to hook you to the water source to make you the best orange you can be, right? Like, what if you're like a rotten orange or like a sour orange? Or a bit, your orange is a bit too ripe. Or what if you got a little bit of mold on the outside of your orange? We want to hook that orange to the water source to be the best orange it can be. So, again, what if an alien said, what is church? And we said, church is a group of people who are teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. You could call that anything, and that's a place worth going. Today, we'll call it church, because that's what we're talking about. But any group of people that are teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about their world, that is a place worth going. A fence-based place is obsessed with who is worthy. A well-based place is obsessed with who is thirsty. A fence-based place is obsessed with sending less. A well-based place is obsessed with loving more. A fence-based place is obsessed with fixing everything. A well-based place is obsessed with nothing has to be hidden. A fence-based place is obsessed with conversion. A well-based place is, it, it celebrates conversion, but is obsessed with thirst. Like we're teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. Maybe we could put some more language around this. Next slide. See, the overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God, treat others as you don't be treated. By Acts 15... 10 years after Jesus, they had done, Jesus had such a profound impact on his world, they had dumbed it down to four. Food sacrifice to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. That is an awesome effort in 10 years to go from 613 to four with the goal of getting to two. That is a massive impact. Maybe we should ask a few questions about this in terms of our own life. Next slide. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? Because fences matter less if we're moving toward the center anyway. Like if we describe our Christianity as rule keeping, we have to know where the fence is and how far we can go. That doesn't matter if we're heading towards the center anyway. If we're grabbing towards the center, the fence doesn't matter. Like if you don't understand what I'm saying, let me give you a couple examples. Here's a few really good fences, okay? And we should definitely keep them for civilization. Ready? Here we go, ready? It's in the Bible too, by the way. Don't kill each other, right? That's a good one. That's awesome. Hey, we should probably keep that one, right? Right. Seriously, and I would bet, I would bet a good chunk of change that no one in here killed anybody this week. I would also bet that it's not because the Bible says don't kill. It's because you're not a killer, right? And if you still need the Bible to tell you not to kill, I think we might have missed the point. Right, right? Here's another good one, right? Don't take each other's things. Seriously, societies break down if there's corruption and theft. Not good, not good. Hey, listen, don't take each other's stuff, right? It's a good one, it's a good one. And I would bet that no one in here in the last week stole anything. I would also bet it's not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a thief. And if you still need the Bible to tell you don't steal, Maybe we missed the point. Here's another great one. This is a, such a good one. Ready? Don't sleep with each other's spouses. Right? Right? Wife swapping starts to break down societies. Right? That a great society, your life, your wife, and your stuff has to be protected. Right? Don't sleep with each other's spouses. It's a bad plan. And I would bet that no one in here is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse. 
Now, if you're here right now and your heart's beating really fast, and you're like, oh God, don't go prophetic. Okay, if that's you, change your life, okay? Don't tell us about it either. We don't wanna know, just change your life. Don't drag us into your nonsense, just change your life, right? But, but, I, but I would also bet that the reason you're not sleeping with someone else's spouse is not because the Bible says. It's because you don't wanna bring destruction on people you love, right? Like, if you don't understand what I'm saying here, here's what I want you to do after this service is over. I want you to go to lunch with your spouse or coffee or whatever you do. And I want you to sit with them and I want you to hold them by the hand and I want you to look at them and I want you to say this to them. I want you to say, sweetie, I just want you to know, I love you with all my heart. Seriously, it is impossible for me to love a person as much as I love you. But the only reason I'm not sleeping with everybody else is unfortunately the Bible forbids it. See how that goes, right? <laughs> right? Like we all know there's a more profound reason and that's we're heading to the center. The fence doesn't matter so much. Let's let's say it this way. A fence-based place is obsessed with distance. A well-based place is obsessed with direction. That's two different things. Are we more focused on direction instead of distance? A fence-based place is concerned with how close are you to crossing that line? A well-based place goes, wait a minute, their shoulders are facing the center. Can we celebrate and facilitate their next yes, regardless of how small that might be? Let me, let me illustrate this with a true story. And I want you to pay attention to what happens in your spirit at the end of this story, right? Like there'll be a, all right? Um, so I was doing a volunteers night at an enormous church. It was so big that there was 400 people. To be a part of this night, it was a Tuesday night, 400 people. And to be in that room, you had to be on a team somewhere. This church is huge. And my job was to celebrate their volunteering and to, and, and, and to motivate them to keep doing it because churches without volunteers quit running, right? And so part of their night was they had stories. Like much like you heard today, the, the young lady tell, tells her story and, and people celebrate because stories show us what we value, right? And so, and so they value volunteers. So they call it minute to win it. You had to tell your story in 60 seconds or less. I loved it, right? And they had a guy on a stopwatch and if you went 61 seconds, they muted you and then they took the mic. And people celebrated that because it kept people from rambling on and on. It was brilliant. People coming up and they tell their story in 60 seconds and they get down and now it's my turn. I'm up, fixing to get up there. We're gonna have Shane come up now. And somebody says, no, no, there's one more. And the MC was annoyed. You know, like, didn't you see I was moving on? But now this guy's been acknowledged. You gotta do it. He says, all right, mate, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. You got 60 seconds, you know the rules. Come on up, come on up. And the guy gets up. Now remember, I'm after this. He says, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. Because when you wanna kill a party, there you go. And here's what I thought was happening. I thought he waited to the last minute to get up and say, you Christians are stupid, full of fairy tales. You're such a naive people. Can't you go grow a brain? You know, like this, but here's the thing, right? He had 60 seconds. I got 40 minutes. I will win, right? So I, so I just uh, was gonna let him finish. And I'd already started planning in my mind what I was gonna do. I was gonna get up. I was gonna celebrate him. I was gonna honor him. I was gonna love him. I was gonna tell him how glad we are that he is here. You don't, you don't escalate things like that with arguing. You de-escalate that with having a heart of peace, right? But anyway, he changed, the, he changed it anyway. He says, I'm an atheist, but I'm a lonely atheist. And a friend of mine told me that you didn't care whether I believed in God or not to let me be, belong to your thing. So I checked it out and I came, true to his word. You don't care whether I believe in God or not to let me belong here, it's brilliant. 
He said, by the second week, somebody asked me to be a part of your host and hostess team. And I said, yes. By week three, my job is to stand on the front door, smile, be nice, open the door, and show women where the bathroom is. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. And I thought, this is awesome. And he said, and because of your kindness, my story is this. Tonight, I'm going to choose to step back and consider God might be real. Exactly. See that? See what happened? It's like, right, 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 right. The whole place went nuts. Partial standing ovation. Absolute celebration. Why? Because well-based places can facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes. Because the concern is, are their shoulders facing the center? A fence-based place can't do that. A fence-based place is like, yeah, but does he believe all the right things? And does he tick all these boxes? And what if he dies in a car accident? Wait, 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 hang on. A fence-based place asks the wrong questions. A well-based place says, wait a minute, his shoulders are facing the center, and he's responding to the next thing God's asking him to do. What else are we here to do but to facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes? Let's say it another way. Next slide. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build wells instead of fences? Life and provision and prosperity and abundance. What if we did that? Next slide. Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. Yeah, I know it says the Sidonites are cursed, but we're going to call them blessed. I know, I know Moabites aren't welcome, but I'm sort of Moabite, so we're going to have to definitely deal with that one. Hey, I know tax collectors up trees are not the most popular people, but do you see he wants it? It's like amazing stuff. See, Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. In other words, we don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. Fences function best, not as obstacles to jump over to get to the well, but as caroming sort of agents towards the well. If fences make it more difficult to get to the well, then they miss the point, which leads me to Jesus. So there's this thing, right? Still happens today, by the way. Every year in the fall in the Northern Hemisphere, roughly September, October, Jews everywhere choose for seven days to live outside in tents, right? Now, if I was to say to you, hey, uh, for the next seven days, I'm going to live in a tent, what's your question? Why? Well, in the most caricatured elemental elementary way, here's why. Jews everywhere around the world for seven days choose to live outside in a tent, and here's why. They choose to remember that their forefathers were homeless refugee slaves. They actually say it this way. My father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, you could read about that in Deuteronomy 26. My father was a homeless refugee slave. And the idea is, is that if God had not interjected himself into my story, I would still be a homeless refugee slave. And we want to spend seven days reminding ourselves of where we would be had God not interjected himself in our story. And here's the reason why. If we ever lose sight of what we would be if God hadn't interjected himself in our story, we'll lose sight of our responsibility in their story. And they celebrate this for seven days. And of course, if you're close enough to Jerusalem, you go there to do it. I've actually been in Jerusalem when they did this. It's called Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, on the last day of it, they have a closing ceremony. And if you're in Jerusalem, where would the closing ceremony be? At the temple. And it's at this moment that Jesus, to me, says one of the most revolutionary things he ever said. He stood on the temple steps, the most fence-based paradigm of ministry ever created. And here's what he says. Watch this. Next slide. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this, he was speaking in spirit. In other words, hey, you know the full presence of God that you've been told was relegated to the inner part of this building and only very few people ever get to experience it? We're changing the whole thing. It's now available to everybody. Now, if I say that, what's the question? What must we do to get it? And Jesus' answer, want it. Be thirsty. Can you imagine, let me, let me say this another way, ready? Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, a full measure of the Spirit will be a gift to him. Any questions? Yeah. What about eunuchs? Yep, we're gonna include eunuchs. Check Isaiah 56, it's, it's better than, uh, 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 what about Moabites? Yep, 128th Moabite myself. Uh, I have a scab no one knows about, am I? Well, yes, yes, yes. Yes, I have this skin rash no one's aware of. Yep, yep, you too, you too. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. See, as Christ-centered, do you see the offensiveness of being a Christ-centered community who still thinks like fences? And here's the thing, right? The main leaders all over the world have already made this move. The problem is, is you can only move an organization as fast as the slowest cog in the wheel. Don't be that cog. <laughs> now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle for a second. Next slide. When is the last time I saw God do something that made me feel uncomfortable? And I would say, if we haven't seen it in a while, it's, it's not because God stopped, it's because we stopped paying attention. Let me illustrate this with a quick story. One of my best friends in the world is a guy named Richard Crisco. Richard Crisco, if you're over 50, you probably know the name. Richard Crisco was the youth pastor at the Brownsville Revival. And um, uh, amazing thing, seven years, 10,000 people a night, people lining up at 6 a.m. to be at church at 7 p.m. and then it would go to 3 a.m. Amazing, ridiculous stuff was going on. And, um, and I asked him one time, I said, we were at, at dinner at a place called Chili's in Detroit. And I said, um, I said, bro, tell me a story from Brownsville that surprised you. Like you saw God do something and you didn't think God could do it. He said, oh, easy. He said, there was this one night, it was 2.30 in the morning and we were still praying and we'd been there since six and we were there the three, he said, I was so tired. And, and he said that the, the, the line was out the door still waiting for prayer. And I looked up and what happened was a group of young adults in their early twenties had showed up after midnight because you didn't have to wait in line if you showed up after midnight. And they, they went up to the balcony and they had come to do skits to make fun of us. So they were doing these Saturday night live style skits to me. And basically what they were doing was they were pretending to pray for one another and they were shaking or whatever. And then, and then everybody'd laugh and clap. It was hilarious. And so he said, he said, so I, he said, so I was so tired. I think I looked up and thought, God send a bear to eat them. He said, but then they came down here and I thought they brought their show to the front and I'd had enough. So I eyeballed security and I was like, oh, listen, we're gonna throw them out, right? And so I just walked over and kindly said, guys, we've had enough. You guys are gonna have to go. And he said, the leader of the group said, please help me. And Richard said, what, what happened to you? He said, I don't know if you noticed, but we were up there making fun of you. And Richard said, I noticed. And he said, well, he said, I was pretending to pray for people. And anyway, he said, this is our friend. I can't remember his name, Pete, I think. Anyway, but he, he said he was injured in a motorbike accident and it has paralysis in his legs, it, enough paralysis to be confined to a chair. And our last skit was we were gonna 
tie strings to his wrist, his elbows, his knee, yeah, everything. We had these bars and I was gonna pretend to pray for him. And then we were all gonna move him around like a puppet, like he's moving out of the chair. And Richard said, well, man, friends like you, who needs enemies, you know? And he said, well, he said, when I pretended to pray for him, he said that he got fire through him and he started moving his legs without us grabbing it. And I realized that I might be messing with something above my pay grade. Can you help me? And Richard Crisco asked me, can, can God use an atheist to pray for another atheist with the intent of making fun of the things of God to heal them? And I said, I don't know. And he said, me neither. He said, but then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with whatever God is up to? See, if we have too many fences, it makes it's, you can't handle that. Uh, have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, unclean over a hungry, thirsty paradigm? That we exist to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes, regardless of how small it might be. Am I blaming someone right now? Or am I responsible? Next slide. Am I a teachable person? Or do I start with the notion, if I hadn't thought of it, it can't be true. Like, what? Am I flexible? Like, if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue? Um, but the bigger question I want us to leave with is this. Are we building deeper wells or higher fences? Are we obsessed with worth or thirst, sin or love, fixing everything or nothing has to be hidden? Are we teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about our world? Are we obsessed with direction or distance? A well-based place is obsessed with direction, never distance. And so may we be brave enough to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next, yes, regardless how small that might be. And may we be brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. We can always find a verse to be right about, but we can do something more profound and fulfill scripture. And you never know, two thirds of an entire country might day, one day might be a follower of Christ because of your bravery. May we be that kind of community. Thank you for letting me be a part of your morning. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.